Happy Valentine's Day. It's funny what a senior pastor doesn't know. The executive pastor, senior pastor, is a, that relationship is a really a fun one. It's a delicate one. And I'm just so grateful for Jeff Hightower. You know what executive pastors do? They have breakfast meetings and coffee and lunches, and they talk about their senior pastor because we're an odd group. And they have conversations about how do you work with your senior pastor? If his head gets too big, how do you bring him down? If criticism and opposition is coming in too much, how do you build them up? And how do you, when do you tell him information to learn the biorhythms of his life and when he's at peak and when he's down and, and just to when to give him information? And can I tell you, oh, our worship leader, our fill-in got sick at the last minute. Jeff stepped up and didn't tell me a thing until I walked in the room. I love that about you, bro. Way to go. And I love people that, uh, we've already clapped for you, but I love, no, no, no. I love people, okay. I love people that step up. I remember years ago when I worked at a mega church, multi-site mega church, and the senior pastor, a good friend, we were uh, at a party late afternoon. He started getting sick, and he left the party early with his wife. He told me and my wife, he said, RG, you might have to preach tomorrow. And then he called me. In fact, he texted me uh, that night at about 8 o'clock, and he said, you're on. And I text him back and I said, what are you on? But I had to step up and I just, I'm fond for people that step up. I've shared that story with some of you. What I hadn't shared with you is that uh, a few days later, I walked into his office and the finance person handed me a thank you note and a check. And it was a big check. And I went to Best Buy and I bought a flat screen for our family. So serve Jesus and get a flat screen. That's what we're preaching at Fondren Church. But thank you guys for stepping up. Love this family. Tracy, thank you for coming over and making it happen. Keith Warren, my good buddy, thanks for this family. I love these guys. Keith is Jeff's father-in-law, Ashley's dad. He went to high school. He's from Philadelphia, Mississippi. Went to high school with Marcus Dupree. How cool is this, fellas? He made the 30 for 30. ESPN did a 30 for 30, not on him, but on Marcus Dupree. Did you see that? My wife cried during that episode, during that 30 for 30 documentary. And uh, Keith Warren makes it. They interview him and they put his name up. Uh, they put his name up, the wrong name. They put Kevin Warren. How great is that? Uh, doesn't that hurt? That hurt. That had to hurt. You finally make ESPN and they call out the wrong name. That's got to hurt. And here I am uh, digging, the, digging it in deeper, hurting you even more. So go make a name for yourself and um, quit living off Marcus Dupree. It's Valentine's Day. I've already said it. Happy Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is the day when millions of men buy women flowers, cards, and candy to, uh, to express that heartfelt emotion, the same emotion that motivates them to observe birthdays and anniversaries. The emotion, of course, is fear, right? And let me be honest with you. As your pastor, I, I, I love love. I'm in love with love, but Valentine's Day, I, I don't know. Is it, is it a is it just manufactured by Hallmark or whatever? I mean, what's up with Valentine's Day? I, I've got this love-hate relationship because of the pressure and because of the loneliness maybe uh, that it invokes and just the sentiment of expressing love. Here's a, here's a card, a Valentine's Day card. I ran across a couple of these this week. Here's a, a picture, I think, of a butterfly. You make my heart flutter. Isn't that cute? And the first draft of that card I saw this week was this. Caterpillar, until you're prettier, let's just be friends, <laughs> right? And that's just, it's just hard. It's hard. We stumble our way through uh, finding love, receiving it, expressing it, all that stuff. And I just want to throw a fact at you to, to throw into the festivities today. St. Valentine's uh, was a man. He was beaten and stoned, beheaded, and buried on February 14th. 269 A.D. So bring that up tonight when you're eating at Seafood Revolution. 
or Burger King's five for five, whatever you're going to do with your loved one. Uh, last week, we uh, began we began a series, uh, as Nick said, uh, in Nehemiah, calling it Rebuilding a Life. And I stood here this very place a week ago and said that you need a problem. Not a problem of how can I be richer, how can I be more comfortable, how can I be, how can I be smarter and more successful. Not a petty thing, but a problem, a God-sized problem. You need a vision for your life that's big and buoyant and that calls out your best energies that you can apply yourself to. Nehemiah rebuilds a wall. And we're saying God is calling us to rebuild. In a, in a world where things are broken down, things have been destroyed, and where hearts are hurting and homes and people, we're called to be, to be builders. And we all know, you've heard preachers say this before, or you've read it, that it's so much easier to tear down than to build up. Don't you believe that's true? Think about that sandcastle at the beach, right? One rogue wave, and it's down. And you took a long time with your kids to build the castle and the moat and all of it, the meticulous things that went into that. It's just easier to tear down than build up. It's hard to drive around Jackson. It's hard to drive around this part of town without seeing heavy equipment and large cranes. Have you noticed that? There are things that are being built up around us. How about the Meridian? How about the Fondren? How about the District? How about the two new hotels that are coming on State Street and those two big construction sites at UMC? One a parking garage and one more facilities to bring help and healing to people. There's a lot that's being built up around us. But to build something takes a lot. I was reading about the World Trade Center this week, thinking about things that went up, and I learned that it took over 10 years to build. And they had to, they had to section off five city streets. They demolished 164 buildings in order to build those two towers. And at its peak point of construction, there were 4,000 construction workers working at a time to build that. Over 10,000 men and women jumped in to build the two World Trade Centers. 60 of them died during construction of it. And we all know on one brief, horrific morning that's indelibly fixated into our nation's recent history, it was easily torn down. And God has called us, he's called us to be builders, to look at the world that we live in, to see what's broken, and to go to it. Last week I stood here in front of you and I put up Isaiah 58, great passage if you're a note taker, write that down, Isaiah 58. I was watching the news this week at WABT and saw uh, them spotlighting some men and women, uh, black and white, who are working uh, Isaiah 58 ministry uh, not far from us. God bless them. We need a lot of churches, don't we? And we need to work together. And as Ephesians 2 says, now God wants to build walls, but in Ephesians 2, in the New Testament, he says, I want to break down the wall of hostility that separates people. And I want to build something. And God is the architect, and he's the builder, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and we are being built into a holy temple, you and I, and it's way beyond bricks and mortar. But in Isaiah 58, it's, it, it, warns, and it, it warns religious people, and it says, quit your finger pointing and your malicious talk, because we love to do that, don't we? There's a drift in your life and mine. I'm, I'm not looking down on you. I'm just saying it's, it's in our hearts, all of us. When we become religious, we become petty. And we want to finger point and, and talk maliciously about others. And Isaiah calls us out of that and says, go to people in need. Repair, rebuild, restore. Isaiah 58, verses 7 through 12. And that's the call 
on our lives. So here we are back in history. Last week, we asked the question, what's the big deal about a man a long time ago crying at a wall? So what you know, this is Robert doing the recap really quick. Nehemiah, this man that we're studying over these uh, several weeks, he heard that Jerusalem was in ruins, that the city walls had fallen, that the gate had been burned down, and this broke his heart. He was in the lap of luxury. He had a prestigious position uh, in a community called Susa. It wasn't the capital, but it was sort of like a Camp David. It was a really prestigious place where the king dwelled. The king was sovereign. Nehemiah was the cupbearer. It was a prestigious position. Nehemiah heard about Jerusalem in ruins. His heart broke by it. Last week, we learned that walls don't mean as much to us today in terms of safety and protection. We have police officers. But back in the ancient world, walls meant a whole lot. Walls meant that you could have a safe city. Walls meant that there could be commerce, there could be prosperity, there could be work, and there could be wealth. There could be family life. Children could play safely outdoors. There could be art and education and worship. Without city walls, there would be violence. There would be fear. There would be hunger. There would be displacement. There would be just a loss of dignity. A city wall was really important back in the day. And Nehemiah, in that lap of luxury, he hears the news 800 miles away, and his heart is broken. And he prays a prayer that's just too good not to look at this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1. Last week we just looked at the first four verses where Nehemiah heard the news, and it, the Bible tells us he wept and mourned, fasted, and prayed. And here, let's look at this prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. This is so beautiful. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned, against you. And this is what I've learned in 2016. We love about our leaders. Listen, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have, and have not kept the commandments, the statues and the rules that you commanded. Your serv- from your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, through, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there, I'll need to explain this in a second, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make the name dwell there, my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, Nehemiah 1.11. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah, we learned last week, we're reflecting today, the first leadership lesson from this man so long ago was that he had a broken heart. And you've heard it, it was Spurgeon who said long ago that God won't use a man or woman greatly until he hurts them deeply. And here is this man saying, my heart, it's broken. I I cry, I cry at the thought of the wall. These are my people. This is my story. This isn't just live, local, late-breaking stuff. This is 800 miles away. But man, those are my people and my heart breaks. And what I notice here in this beautiful prayer that is so rich is that Nehemiah, 
He doesn't start with how big the problem is. He starts with how big God is. And he says, you are a covenant-keeping God. Have you noticed in your life, I'm telling you it's true in mine, it's true in everybody, no one's exempt from this, but if you believe he answers, you pray. If you believe that his hands aren't tied, you ask him. If you believe God can do what he says he's gonna do, you call out to him. Have you noticed that? Conversely, if you don't believe is there, he's there. And here Nehemiah uses a word so common in scripture, your ears being open to being attentive to my cry, your eyes seeing and knowing the divinity uh, trying to be connected, juxtaposed toward humanity. God, are you there? Do you care? It's in every heart, isn't it? And Nehemiah, when he offers this real honest prayer, he begins not with how big his problem is, but with how big God is. And can I just say that keeps so many of us stuck. Let's just say it. Let's just, some, some of us, many of us can't get past how big our problem is. And far be it for me today to stand here and say that you don't have a problem. Far be it for me to stand here today and say that your problem is not big. But when we start with how big our problem is and not how big God is, we, we, we stay stuck. Nehemiah says you're a covenant-keeping God. Here's what's interesting. Nehemiah is essentially quoting Moses. And look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He's, uh, he lifted these words from an earlier prayer. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. This is Moses. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Isn't that beautiful? Like that's one of those that just warms your heart. It makes you feel good. You want to say amen to that. Y'all don't say amen a lot. But if this was an amen saying church, this is probably when you would say amen. I'm not taking shots at you. Just want you to wake up and respond a little bit, okay? Let's bring some life to this place, people. But listen, this is one you would say amen to, but this one may not. Deuteronomy chapter four. Not a text we put on a t-shirt. After you have had children and grandchildren have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. We need leaders who know the word. We need leaders who won't follow just self-help drivel, motivational contemporary literature, whatever's rolling out the latest trends or fads. We need leaders who know the word of God. Nehemiah knew the word of God and what helped him go to God and approach God and see the bigness of God is Nehemiah is essentially saying, let me break it down for you. Nehemiah is saying this. He's saying, you said this would happen. You said this would happen. And while I got you in this room, let me just say, there is sin and there's consequences for our sin. 
And how many of us sin? Everyone. Romans teaches us for all of sin. A sin affects every one of us. He goes on, Paul in Romans 1 tells sin affects every part of us. Our minds and our imaginations, our will, our rebellion, our bent toward forsaking God. But there are consequences. And Nehemiah is saying, you know what? This is on us. This is on us. And you very likely, God, could be raising me up to lead. And I want to lead the people. And I want to start by saying God is great and we are not. And he said this would happen. But he is, God is, a covenant-keeping God. Chapter 1, Nehemiah 1.11, he prays what? That you would give your servant success. Do you pray for success? Do you ever pray that God would give you success? Probably all the time, right? Is that not, in essence, our most popular prayer? Lord, give me success. Give me this. Give me that. Give me, give me, give me success. But it's a good prayer to pray if you have a God-sized problem. If you have a big, buoyant vision for which you are applying your energies and you are saying God and I together, and isn't that what prayer is? It's God and I together. It's not your stamp of approval on my plans. It's me getting under the covenant-making, keeping God and saying, let's do this together. I have a part and God has a part. And submitting ourselves to that and that's what Nehemiah is saying. He says, give your servant success because he knows he's about to tackle something way bigger than him. And can I just say, God has called us to more than just a middle of the road, play it safe, compliant sort of existence. God, give your servant success. And he says what in verse 11? That you would... You would show me mercy in the sight of this king. A great leadership principle. God ordains, God sets things up, and oftentimes you and I are doing the right thing when we obey the laws and we go through the proper procedures. That's hard for me to say because by nature, be quiet, by nature I'm a rule breaker. All right? Post something, I want to break the rule. I do it all the time. That's my sin. Pray for me. But God says there are authority, there are, there are structures. I, I set it in place. Now, Jesus was a dissident. Jesus spoke and lived counterculturally. There's a part in Acts, and I said it last week, we today pray for safety. The early church prayed for boldness. And in Acts chapter 4, it says we ought to obey God rather than man. There are times to be dissident, times to be defiant. But there's times also to say, I need the king's favor. God, if this is going to work, I need the king's favor. Good leaders know that. And Nehemiah says, give me mercy in the sight of this king. Now let's talk about this relationship with the king. You have king who was sovereign. You have cupbearer who was a close confidant. Now it was a good gig. I've said this week and today that Nehemiah was in the lap of luxury. It was a prestigious position. He was a consultant to the sovereign king. In that day, that meant a lot. It meant there was, there was a little bit of danger. It, it wasn't a good job. It wasn't a good gig if someone was trying to poison the king because they'd poison you. That was your job. But there's this, this idea. I love this in Proverbs 21.1, so important. Some of you need God to do a big work in your life now. In the Lord's hands, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. God can work in the king's heart. God can change things and God can reverse things. 
This is probably when you want your pastor to give a commentary on the presidential election, the GOP debate from last night, but I'm not gonna do it. I'm just gonna stay Proverbs 21. I'm gonna talk about the ancient king and the cupbearer and stay out of trouble and protect our taxes and status. There's ancient manuscript from the Babylonian culture. Remember I said last week that the Assyrians had dominated the land and then the, uh, or the Babylonians, the Assyrians and the Persians and this was Persian rule and the place was Susa, the king was Artaxerxes. In that same time frame, here is this, um, this ancient literature. This isn't Bible, okay? I'm not putting it up with a Bible. It's on the screen, but I'm not putting it up with a Bible. Now, a hiker, that's how you pronounce the name. Now, a hiker was a cupbearer, keeper of the signet ring, and in charge of the administration of financial accounts. Isn't that something? The wine guy is in charge of the finances. Maybe that's why the Babylonians no longer rule the world, huh? <laughs> let's, just call, let's just say it, right? You don't let the wine guy deal with the money. Bad, bad call, Babylonians. And they're not even here to taunt, right? Here's my point, is that the cupbearer was more than just a wine taster in, the, in ancient culture. He was really important. But the one thing that the king needed from the cupbearer, you ready for this? You'll know this intuitively, you know this. He needed loyalty. Nehemiah was appointed because he was a trustworthy person. But he would need to remain trustworthy. He would need to prove himself. Isn't that the crazy thing about trust? You got to prove yourself over and over. Sometimes I want to be like, man, I was, I was trustworthy. I was honest on Tuesday. I'm going to be free for a few days, right? And just do as my, you know, appetite say. I'm just, I'm just going to do my thing. I, but I was, man, Tuesday, I was good. Just always spoke the truth to everybody. Tuesday. But trustworthiness, you got to over and over again. Now, Nehemiah chapter two, we've got to enter into the story to understand it. Nehemiah chapter two, uh, verses one through three. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Not afraid, not much afraid, but very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. That's what you would say to the king, by the way. Let the, every time you saw the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? It's sad, when I, by the way, when I walk into staff, they don't even look at me, much less, let's say, let the pastor live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, notice he doesn't call out Jerusalem, but it lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And here, Nehemiah is navigating a minefield. You see, when the king asked you how you were, you always said, long, oh, I'm fine, I, I am, I'm here for you. It doesn't matter how I feel, long live the king. My whole existence is about you, I'm fine, don't worry about me. But to be sad and then you admit that you are sad is really a risky thing for the cupbearer to do. Do you, do you get that? And then he does something else that's risky. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? You can tell they have a good relationship. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. History. 
In your Bible, there's two books. There's Nehemiah and there's Ezra. And at one point, there was sort of a, there was a togetherness. Historically, there is a togetherness about this book. But there was at one point when they were uh, together as the same book. And Nehemiah is coming to the king. He's not only showing emotion that he shouldn't show in a really risky situation. And by the way, when, if the cupbearer was ever disloyal, he was terminated. And back then when you got terminated, you got terminated. And Nehemiah shows his sadness at risk. And then he says, hey, you know that policy decision you made? That was the wrong one. Kind of like a debate last night. He didn't call him a liar, but he said that policy decision, that was a wrong one. Look at Ezra chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. It's the same king, Artaxerxes. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease. Now, in, Jeru- in the history there, there was an earlier attempt to rebuild the wall. That's the context of this. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should the damage grow to the hurt of the king? You see, this was the same king who earlier stopped the rebuilding of the wall. And this cupbearer whose job was to protect the king from being poisoned, to taste the wine and to eat the fine food, to make sure that he was not ever assassinated slowly and painfully, to be loyal, he showed his sadness and he looked at him and said, hey, that decision you made, that policy decision, you ought to reverse that. And he's playing the God card. God is saying to me, God is stirring up in me that you ought to change your decision. Nehemiah was a leader who decided I'm not gonna play it safe. This wasn't a passing concern. This was something that was taking root deep inside him. And he's saying, I wanna do something about this and King God's gonna need to use you. And I love this. We don't just see a broken heart. We see bold asking. Bold asking. Look at Nehemiah chapter two and the following few verses. I believe this is six through eight. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. How how cute is that on Valentine's Day? You got the king, you got the queen right there. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, "Look, look at this, man. I love my boy. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy and the good news and the king granted. He granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Here's Nehemiah, broken heart, a bold ask. He, he, ha, he was more moved by his vision of rebuilding Jerusalem than he was his fear of the king. Remember, he was afraid. He wasn't just very afraid. He was very much afraid. And can I say today, can I ask you if you're letting what you're afraid of stop you from doing what God is calling you to do? We don't have time to testify, but I know we have stories around the room. And Jesus taught a hard saying, Again, we don't put this one on t-shirts, but Jesus said, don't fear man, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. But I can't help but think that we let the fear of man stop us from doing what God wants us to do. And here's Nehemiah, afraid, very much afraid. Don't you love honesty in your leaders? Don't you love transparency? He says, hey, I'm sad. 
I'm brokenhearted. I'm very much afraid, but that's not going to stop me. I'm going to, this broken heart, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to ask big. And what's he asking for? Uh, let me put this in our, translate it to modern day. He's saying what? He's saying, I want a military escort. I want you to keep me safe all along the way. Hey, King, I'd like the, the royal credit card so I can stop at Home Depot and buy things for the rebuilding. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to need a lot of time off. I don't know what the employee handbook manual says, but I need some time off. He asked in a big way. Now, that last verse that we looked at is a beautiful verse, isn't it? Man, God gave me favor. He's leading me there. But what you need to know, and we'll look at this over the next couple of weeks, is that when he crossed over, when he started out, and this is true in life, some of us think, oh, when my heart is broken and I go toward a need. And I remember I said last week that, that God often gives a concern before he gives a solution. And when we walk into that, when we have that concern and we're going toward the solution and we get favor and a door opens, there's an answer prayer. We think what? Smooth sailing. How many of you have been victimized by that lie? Oh, God, open the door. Now it's going to be smooth sailing. Selling. How many times have I been victimized? Oh, God, you, what an answer to prayer for our church, for our family. This door's open. Praise God. Smooth sailing. But Nehemiah, we're going to learn next week, he ran into some characters named Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite. And it says that they were in opposition, in critical opposition. Can I say that when you're going to do something good for God, you're probably going to come up against critical opposition? I'm just preaching to me, maybe not to any of you, but I want smooth sailing. And life shows me when God gives me a burden for something to be built up, there's critical opposition. Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great years ago, and he says that he identified two qualities in leaders, men and women, who are high-impact, long-lasting, well-respected leaders. Get that? High-impact, long-lasting, well-respected leaders. They have two traits that are common in them. The first is, drum roll, it's humility. They're not driven by their own ego. They're self-effacing. They put others first. The second quality, he says, is fierce resolve. They're not so easily deterred. Now, if we put a scale up here, where would you be on that scale? If on the right side, there was fierce resolve, and on the left, there was easily discouraged, where would you fit on that scale? What, what side would you be on? Picture Popeye the sailor next to fierce resolve. And to the left, picture Charlie Brown. And where are you? When you say, I'm going to bring something before God, God has brought something to my life, it's a concern, I don't want it to be a passing concern, I'm going to be praying about it, that God would give me a big buoyant vision and a problem in this world, you begin to pray, you begin to pray, but then it doesn't seem to work at first, forget all that Jesus taught about, about being persistent in prayer, it just doesn't seem to work, and so you quit, you're easily discouraged. You say, I'm going to honor God with my finances. I'm going to do this thing his way. And even though it hurts a little bit, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to give to God. I'm going to give God. It's going to be priority given, a percentage given. I'm going to honor his word, but it gets difficult and you don't do it. You, you become easily discouraged. You say, hey, I'm going to work with my kids and with my children. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to instill this really important virtue, but it gets hard and you slack off. You say, hey, I'm going to honor God at work. I'm going to show up and I'm going to live out Colossians 3, 3. I'm going to do my work heartily as unto the Lord. But you get beat down by the culture 
and you quit, you, you're easily discouraged. When I was a young man, I was smitten by this woman. I asked her out and she said no. And I asked her out again, nada, nothing, zip. I called her, told her that on the phone, I told her that I liked her a lot, dead silence. And I made up my mind that I was just shoot through sheer fierce resolve was just going to wear her down. And what I lacked for and whatever I lacked, good looks, I guess, whatever I lacked, whatever she found lacking in me, I was going to make up for in just sure persistence. Can I tell you today that woman is happily married? Not to me, but <laughs> she's happily married and I found somebody better and God is good on Valentine's Day. Do you persist? Are you persistent or do you let your fear and do you let your discouragement? Because life, the great prize of life is not necessarily to the gifted, to the talented, to the attractive, to the charming, but it's the one who says, I will not let go. I will be faithful. I will be faithful to God and faithful in my commitments. And when it gets hard and when I am discouraged, I will not be easily discouraged to the point where I just let go. But I hold on and I serve him. Nehemiah had his heart broken. And though he was afraid, very much afraid, he asked big things of God. And then he moved towards action. I'll close with this. Because what I love about Nehemiah is that he's a visionary, but he was moved to action. Some of us get stuck in the vision. John Maxwell, a leadership guru, says, it's not enough just to stare up the steps. You have to step up the stairs. You get that? Over four years ago, we were in Passion in Atlanta. My wife and I, we were with Scott and Paige McLeod, and we had just come out of a great, phenomenal worship experience with, I think, 40,000, 50,000 college students from around the southeast. Phenomenal experience. And we were walking up some big, some big arena, and there was just a massive um, um, escalator. And we were about to go up the up escalator because that's what God intends for people to do. But being a rule breaker, uh, I thought it'd be fun to go up the down. And this was just, this thing was steep and gigantic, okay? I mean, big time. And I looked at my wife and she gave me that look like, you know, you're a stud, you got this. And I looked over at Scott and Paige McLeod and they just, they, I don't know, there was kind of deadpan, but I just started running up the, the steps. I ran, started running up the down escalator. And man, I ran and people started going, people, they didn't know me, they're like, go, 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 go. And I heard the voices and the cheer. People were for me and I was running up and then I just slowed and slowed. There was no go, go. They were saying go, go. And I was like, slow, slow, slow. And I didn't make it. <laughs> and what happens when you don't make it? You duck your head and you go back down the escalator. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it wasn't my wife I had to face. It was Scott McLeod, all right, who played college football, right? And who not only makes fun of me, the next day, what does he do? He sees it, same situation, leaving praise and worship. It should have been about God. Scott made it about Scott. And he goes up the down escalator. And you know what? He made it. And I hadn't stopped hearing about it. But it's not enough to stare up the steps. You have to step up the stairs. And what I love about Nehemiah is he's a man of action. And we're going to learn about some really good action. I'll close, really close with this, Hebrews 13, 7. It says, remember your leaders, the word of God they spoke to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What I love about Nehemiah, he's a hero of mine. God broke his heart. 
and he asks big, and he follows it with some really bold action amidst criticism and opposition. Join with me as we close in prayer.